Well, good morning, Calvary Chapel. It's good to see you all. Um, my name is Bruce. I am not Pastor Tom. Pastor Tom and his entire family are in California. And uh, so you will only have to put up with me this once and he'll be back. Um, and as a result, it's a little bit different today. Normally in Calvary Chapel, we teach through the Bible. We teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. But today is going to be more of a topical teaching because as I said, you only have me today and then after that, you have to endure this and after that, you're done. You know, just the, the, the end is in sight. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, Steve has some over here. He'd be glad to give you one. Just raise your hand and let him know because as we study God's Word, it's good to see what God has said. Um, So I am honored to fill in for Pastor Tom this morning. Uh, It's a gracious opportunity. It is always a pleasure, um, an honor to be able to share from God's Word. I love God's Word, and uh, it's been my delight for a number of decades. And so it's, uh, and always when we teach, it's our desire that we would know Jesus better, that we would love Him more. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so as we love him more, we walk in his ways. And tells us in Romans chapter 8 that it's God's desire that we be conformed to the image of his son, that we be more like Jesus. And so that's why we're here this morning, is to get to know him better, love him more, and walk in his ways. Now, I suspect that most people here are going to be a little bit more like me in this, that uh, I'm not so independently wealthy that cost means nothing to me. Uh, whenever I get ready to purchase something, I want to know what it costs, whether it's something big like a house or whether it's something like a car or even small things. I want to know what it costs. Uh, I don't have money to just throw around like some of you who might be uh, Marvel uh, or Avenger fans, and you remember Iron Man, Tony Stark was down working on his car, and Pepper Potts, his secretary, comes in, and she's asking about some things. She needs a decision on uh, buying something. He said, um, is it expensive? And she said, it's very expensive. He says, I have to have it. That's not me. And I don't know if that's anybody here. Uh, To my wife's chagrin, even on menus, now before there was an internet, now I can go out and look up menus on the internet and find out what things cost in advance. But once upon a time, you just went in and you sat down and you got the menu. And I looked at that and my eyes popped out and I said, I am not paying that. And to my wife's chagrin, we would get up and walk out. (laughs) And there were some in the first service, they were holding their heads like, yeah, I've done that too. Uh, What does it cost? What does it cost? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning is a a price, um, a biblical price. What does it cost? And so if you would, please turn to Psalm 49. We're going to look at a biblical cost. We'll just be looking at the first um, nine verses of the psalm. Um, and we will be jumping around a lot. It starts off, Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. And the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb and disclose dark sayings on the harp. 
And so he's getting ready to unveil something, to, to give us something that is wise, uh, something understanding, something um, that perhaps many in the world do not understand. Why should I fear in the day of evil, days of evil, when the iniquity uh, at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Nobody lives on forever. Everybody dies at some point. I remember reading an article, I think it was up in the northeast somewhere, was uh, Massachusetts or some, it was someplace up in the northeast, and it said the death rate was 4% last year. No, maybe only 4% of the population died, but the death rate is always 100%. Unless Jesus comes and takes us out of here first. Uh, well, okay, there's Elijah and there's Enoch. But aside from that, <laughs> from those two, death rate is always 100%. It doesn't go forever. And if, except for God's provision for us, we would see the pit. Because there's no way that we can afford to redeem our own souls or somebody else's soul, all the riches uh, in the world. Bill Gates can't do it. Nobody can do it. Nobody can pay for the redemption of a soul because it is costly. God knew what it was going to cost. It says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, before he created the heavens and the earth, before he created plants, before he created animals, and especially before he created Adam and Eve, mankind, God already knew the end from the beginning. He knew that he was going to do this. He knew he was going to create us in his image. He knew that we would fail, that we would sin. And the person in the Godhead called the Word, the Son, he became known as the Son, he said, I will go down, empty myself, take their form. I will pay the price for their sin. And that was the plan from the beginning. And knowing what it cost, knowing what is on the menu in advance, God said, I am willing to pay that price. And so when he did create Adam and Eve and they did sin, God was not surprised. It didn't blindside him. He didn't go, oh, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he get all frantic. And he already knew before the foundation of the world, before he created anything, he knew this was the plan. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew the price and was willing to pay it. They'd already determined that he would come and die a horrible death to pay the price for our sin. Because it says in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. That's what it takes. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Free for us. But it was costly. The redemption of the souls, of our souls, is costly. And with this plan, as it says in Romans chapter 3, 
God could be just and the justifier. He could be just because he would take out his wrath against sin, but he's going to take it upon himself. Then he could justify us. He could be just and the justifier. He doesn't just overlook the sin. There has to be a death for it. The price has to be paid, but he took that price upon himself. This was the plan from the beginning. Father, we see and know from your word here, as we read it in Psalm 49, that there are no amount of material wealth of gold or silver or jewels or uh, material things such as lands or buildings or even things of pleasure such as entertainment or wealth, uh, uh, works or good deeds. Uh, none of these things can redeem a single soul, let alone billions of souls. You knew what it would cost before you created Adam and Eve, and yet you're willing to pay the debt that we have absolutely no resources to pay for ourselves. For this, we give you thanks. For this, we praise you. And we will thank you and praise you forever because of your great love, your great grace for the multitude of your tender mercies and for the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, your Son, Jesus. Now we ask that you'd have your way this morning in this study, in our lives, as we remember your perfect Passover lamb and the price he paid. Therefore, we ask this in his name, the name of our Lord, the King, Jesus. Amen. As we consider the price of redemption and that it is costly, let's take a quick look at who Jesus is. Now, we don't have time to take a in-depth look at the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, or the deity of Christ. We're just going to touch on these things. Um, but we want to get a picture of who Jesus is and what price was paid. How costly was sin? How costly is the redemption of the souls? And so uh, as we look to um, who Jesus is, first of all, the Trinity. Why do we believe in the Trinity? Well, how do we, how do we come to this idea of the Trinity? Well, the Trinity, uh, what we see in the Bible is that there's somebody who's called the Father, and he's called God. We see somebody who's called the Son, and he's also called, or the Word, and he's also called God. And we see somebody called the Holy Spirit, and he's called God. And then we're told there's only one God. Hero Israel, Yahweh, your God. Yahweh is one. There's only one God. And so that's why we believe in the Trinity, because this is how he's revealed in his word. There are uh, cults around that uh, do not believe this. And so I picked, there's lots of places to, to go about uh, showing the deity of Christ. We're just going to look at one in depth, uh, because this is one that gets distorted. There's basically two um, heresies that I want, want to look at this morning. One is called um, Sabalianism, and the other one is Arianism. And we want to look at John 1.1, 1, 1 because Greek... Now, before we get very far, you look at this, you go, this is too much information. I don't know anything about Greek, and I don't want to know anything about Greek. That's okay. I, I just want you to know about these, these heresies. And I want you to know that Greek, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek language is a very precise uh, language. It, uh, 
there's grammatical rules at play here, and God can say things very specifically. And there's some specific things he did not say, and there's specific things he did say. And so that's what we want to look at in the light of these um, these heresies. So uh, the uh, Sabellianism is named after Sibelius, and he lived in the 3rd century A.D., which would be the 200s. And the other heresy is called Arianism, and he lived in the late um, 3rd century, early 4th century. Two different ideas. For for 1,700 years, these have been heresies. They are still around to this day. The devil doesn't come up with new stuff. He found a lie 1,700 years ago, or a couple of lies 1,700 years ago, and these lies still exist in some form. Today, the devil keeps using the same lies over again. So, when we look at John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired John this a particular way. And we want to look at ways he could have written it, because had he said it differently, maybe one of these things would not be heresies. Maybe Trinitarianism would be a heresy because these other uh, ways would be what he said. But God didn't say those things. He said specifically what he meant. He gave it to us in a very precise language, and, and he gave it to us in a very unambiguous form. Greek is way less ambiguous than English. So um, we'll just look at that last phrase of the first verse. And you may learn a little bit of Greek here because we're going to see these same words over and over again. You'll get used to, oh, kai, that's and. Okay, kai is and, ha is the, the os is God, ain is was. Ain also means continual existence in the past or continual action in the past. And ha, that's the same as that one. There's the again, and then logos, that's the word. So we're going to see these arranged differently to depict different grammatical constructions and grammatical rules in Greek. John could have said, Kai hathaos ein halagos, and the God was the word. Or you can flip the word and God around and say, Kai halagos ein hathaos, and the word was the God. Now this is kind of an A equals B and B equals A thing. They both mean the same thing. And that means that God and the word are completely synonymous. You can say God, you can say the word, and that the word is all there is to God. That's it's just the same same name for the same being. But this is not what John wrote. This would be a, a reference to uh, Sabellianism, where basically his contention was God is one being, and he just wears different hats. He puts on his, okay, now I'm the father hat. And then he says, okay, now I'm going to, take that off, I'm going to put on the sun hat. Now I'm the sun. And then he takes that hat off and says, okay, now I'm the Holy Spirit. And so he, he wears these, he's one person who wears these three different costumes and presents himself these three different ways. That's not what God said. That's what Sibelius said. That's not what God said in his word. And besides that, it doesn't even make sense because when you look at the whole verse and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Well, how could he be with God if he's all there is to God? See what I'm saying? I would say, I would never say I am with Bruce. I am Bruce. Uh, you know, I can't be with me unless I'm schizophrenic. And, as, and God is not schizophrenic, okay? And so 
this isn't what God wrote. So this proves that Sabellianism is wrong. Now, what is that today? Well, unity Pentecostalism, oneness Pentecostalism, and the Jesus-only movement are all descended, uh, descended from this heresy, uh, basically saying Jesus is a father, Jesus is a son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that. I have. Uh, there was a church in uh, Sioux Falls that teaches this. fact is, I know there's one here in Springfield. My wife and I were driving oh, Friday, uh, went out for a drive, and I saw a, a unity Pentecostal church. And, well, there's, here's a, one of the people that do this. So this still exists this day. This is not what God said. Okay? So let's go to the next one. This one kind of fits in the same category, but it's a little bit different. Kai ha lagos thaos ain, and the word God was. Had John written it this way, he'd have been saying that the word has the nature of God, not anybody else. So the Father's not God, the Spirit's not God, only the word is God. It's Jesus only. This is still a part of this Jesus onlyism thing, which, like I say, is a heresy that exists to this day. John did not write this. This is not what God told us. This was not what he was trying to communicate. Okay, let's go to the next one. Now this gets into the Arian heresy. Kai halagos ein theos. And the word was God. If John had written it this way, he would have been in agreement with, he would have been saying what uh, Arius of Alexandria said. He contended that Jesus was the first created being. And that through Jesus, God created everything else. Jesus was not created. In the beginning was the Word. There's only two categories here. We have things that are God and the things that are created. And he was in the beginning before creation. In fact, is later in that first chapter, John, he says, and nothing that has been made was made without him. He made all things. Nothing without him. If it's been made, he did it. And so... Um, So there's only two categories. You're either creator or createe. Um, this one would have been the way that he would have written it if he meant to say what the Watchtower and the Jehovah's Witnesses teach in their Bible, which is not a translation, it's an abomination. They went through and changed the things they didn't like to agree with their, what they believe. And so um, this says, and the word was a God. That's not what God said. John didn't write it this way. This was the way, if he wanted to say that, he could have said it by putting it this way. Um, this would lead to polytheism. We're told that there's only one God, but yet if Jesus is a God, then that means there's more than one God. Now, there are things called gods. Uh, Satan is called the God of this world. Is he God? Well, no, he's not God, he's, but he's one that holds sway in the world here and he, he acts in the position of God that he's not God by nature. People refer to idols as God, but they are not idols by nature, but they are not gods by nature. But God is God by nature. Jesus is God by nature. That takes us to the next one. Um, this is what, there we go. This is what John wrote. Kai theos ein halagos and God was the word. Now the word order has to change because this has the article, and so this is the subject, and the word was God. This was written in such a way to 
indicate that the Word has the nature of God, just as the Father has the nature of God, just as the Holy Spirit has the nature of God, so the Word also has the nature of God. And so, really, the only way that you can really understand what um, John said, the way he wrote it, is to have a Trinitarian view of things, that he could say the Word was with God because the Word was with the Father, and he was with the Holy Spirit. That's how he could be with God, and yet he is God in the sense that the Father is God, and in the same sense that the Holy Spirit is God. They're all called God, and that's why we believe in the Trinity. So the um, Sibelius was wrong, and Arius of Alexandria was wrong. Um, I, I started to say uh, something about the Watchtower. They, they called themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't like to use the word Jehovah's Witness because they are not Jehovah's Witnesses. They are false witnesses to Jehovah. And Jesus said, besides that, in Acts, when you Holy Spirit comes on, you receive you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit goes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. So I am happily a Jesus witness. Uh, but that is being a true witness to Jehovah. The Jehovah's Witnesses are not. I usually call them Watchtower slaves. Whatever the Watchtower says, that's what they do. Whatever the Watchtower says, that's what they believe. They're slaves to the Watchtower. And they believe in the Arianism. So John, uh, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to teach things specifically a certain way. To, 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 and he could have taught any one of these views, but he didn't. He taught this one. The grammatical construction used in this verse was the most concise way he could have stated that the Word was God and yet distinct from the Father and distinct from the Holy Spirit. You cannot properly understand what John said without coming uh, to the conclusion of the idea of the Trinity. And in so doing, he destroys both of these heresies. He, ra- he phrased John 1.1 the only way he could insinuate a triune God. Okay. So now we've and there's lots of places that we could go to to talk about uh, the deity of Christ and where He is called God. He's called God in a lot of places. In fact, uh, not only does the Bible call Jesus God, Jesus called Himself God. He did this mostly with the name I Am. There are several places where He uses the name, and even in some of the English translations, it's uh, somewhat apparent. For instance, in John chapter eight, He refers to Himself as the I Am. Now you're tr- Translation probably has I am he, and he is in italics because um, it's not in the Greek there. He just said I am. Well, what about what is this about I am? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God was calling Moses to go to Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. He said, well, I'll go and, and talk to them, uh, but they may say, what's his name? Who sent you? He said, what shall I tell them? Who sent me? And he said, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you to them. And so this is a name that God has taken for himself. Jesus in John chapter 8 says, unless you believe I am, you'll die in your sin. And they said, oh, who are you saying you are? He said, I told you who I am. I've been saying that I've been telling you all along. He claimed to be God. They knew it. Later on in John chapter 8, he did that three times in chapter 8. But towards the end of the chapter, as he's talking to the leaders of the Jews, he said, before Abraham came into being, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. Why? because they've considered that blasphemy. They knew he was claiming to be God. In fact, just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 10, they once again picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, I've done many good works. For which of these are you stoning me? And they said, we're not stoning you for a good work, but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what he was saying. And there's other times that are less subtle. 
For instance, uh, Jesus fed the 5,000. He sent the disciples on the boat. Uh, He stayed behind and uh, prayed. Later on in the night, he comes out. The the disciples, they've got a contrary wind, and they're straining at the oars, and they're trying to get across the sea, and Jesus walks out to to them on the Sea of Galilee. They thought they saw a ghost. They're not accustomed to seeing guys in the middle of the night walking out on water. And uh, they were afraid. And Jesus said, I am. Do not be afraid. Of course, it says, it is me, or it is I, or it is um, something like that in our modern translations. But in Greek, it's very obvious. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. You know, that might be for somebody here. I didn't even mention that in the first service. Maybe you're going through something hard. Maybe you're straining at the oars. Maybe you're afraid. Take courage and know Jesus is the I am. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. Actually, stop being afraid. So there's a lot of places where he, Jesus himself claimed to be God. So the Bible calls Jesus God. Jesus calls himself God. The Father calls Jesus God. That's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, where the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. God the Father calls him God. There are Old Testament scriptures referring to Yahweh, which is in our English translations generally as Lord in all capital letters. Um, that's the signification of the divine name in Hebrew, the four letters that make up God's name. We usually have it Lord in capital letters. <clears throat> and there's scriptures regarding Yahweh that are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. That's another way we know that he's God. The Old Testament also refers to multiple persons as Yahweh. And then we also see that the identity of the Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament, is to be Yahweh. I do want to take a moment to look at that one. There's so much we're not looking at, but let's go ahead and turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah is easy to find. If you go to Matthew and then back up to two small books. Zechariah chapter 12. Yahweh is speaking. First verse says, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord. It's all capital letters. Says Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh. And then on verse 4, he says, in that day, says Yahweh. So Yahweh is speaking all through here. And we get down to verse 10, and he says, I will pour on the inhabitants, I'm sorry, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Who's doing this? Yahweh's doing this. This is the Lord speaking. Yahweh's doing this. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they've pierced. Now, wait a minute. When did Yahweh get pierced? This is a prophecy about Jesus. And he's Yahweh. And he's going to be pierced. And then take a look. Pronoun alert coming up. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Zechariah is hearing from God. Yahweh is speaking to Zechariah. And he says, they will look on me. Yahweh, who's Pierce, uh, Jesus. And then it's like the Father and the Holy Spirit step in. That, w- that was obviously the word 
the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten Son of God. We recognize that that was Jesus. And so he's saying, they'll look at me whom they have pierced, and then the Holy Spirit and the Father step up and say, yes, they will mourn for him as for an only Son. There's one Yahweh, but we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. So this is just an example, one of, one of the examples. There are others uh, as to prophecy of who Messiah is and that he's going to be Yahweh. Now, <clears throat> I want to look at, as I said, I want to look at who Jesus is as a, um, to, to provide us a little bit of a context on what the cost of redemption is, because it says the redemption of their souls is costly. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you were a child growing up in a devout Jewish home 2,000 years ago. This is 2,000 years ago. Your parents are diligent to go to Jerusalem on the Passover. Your family must sacrifice a lamb, one year old. Now to us, when we say one year old, that means it's lived for 365 days. That's not the case in the Hebrew way of thinking. When they say a lamb over the first year, it means from eight days old until it's 365 days old, um, till its first birthday. That's the lamb of the first year. And this is made clear to us in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 27, where it says, When a bull or sheep or goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. So this was a little baby lamb, at least eight days old, but less than a year old by our reckoning. And according to Exodus chapter 12, our family would bring the little baby lamb into our home on the 10th. That was what they were instructed to do in Exodus 12. Select a lamb, bring it into your home on the 10th, and then on the 14th, it's going to be sacrificed for the Passover. So this little lamb comes into your home. The children look at it like a pet. You know, they get this little baby lamb living in their home. And then four days later, it's going to be killed. So just consider you're in this Jewish family year after year. Um, your parents take you to Jerusalem. The little baby lamb has been in your home. And now you're going to the temple and it's going to be killed. And we've seen this over and over again, this little baby lamb killed for sin. And it hurts you. You find it painful to watch. Uh, as they slit the throat of this little baby lamb and you see its life come out of it. Life is in the blood. The blood comes out and the life goes out too. But your parents, your parents insist that you be there so that you would understand how much sin costs. Now, let's move on a little farther. Still 2,000 years ago, we're adults now and we've been listening to John the Baptist and John the Baptist one day says, as Jesus comes along, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I've heard about that all my life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then when I consider in that culture at that time and seeing what they saw and seeing these little baby lambs every year being sacrificed, when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, what, does that, what image does that conjure up in your mind? as you remember the slaughtering of the baby lamb. He came to die. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
Now, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that was the tenth. That was the day all the Passover lambs. He came in with all the other Passover lambs into the city on that day. When you brought the lamb in, you were to inspect it to make sure it was without defect. When Jesus went into Jerusalem, he was inspected and found without defect. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, all came at him, pummeling him with questions, trying to make him slip up, find some chink in his armor to somehow bring him down, and they couldn't do it. He answered them in ways that they did not expect. They could not find fault with him at all. In fact, when he asked them a question, they couldn't answer it about the son of David. How could, how could the Messiah be the son of David? So that we don't have time to go into all that. But <clears throat> Jesus was inspected to be without fault by the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. Pontius Pilate said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed, betrayed him, felt remorse. He brought the 30 pieces of silver back to the temple. And he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. He knew there was nothing wrong with Jesus. He was no spot, no, spot, no blemish. He knew he was perfect. I betrayed innocent blood. And he threw the money into the temple. He knew there was no fault in him. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, two others were on crosses with him. One was reviling him. Actually, they both started off doing it, but one changed. One was reviling him, and the one that changed said, Do you not fear God? We deserve what we're getting. But this man has done nothing wrong. Even a thief on the cross, dying, knew that there was nothing wrong with Jesus. And the centurion that was at the cross, when he saw Jesus die, said, Surely this man is the Son of God. Also, in regards to Passover, they have what they call Bedekat Kamates, which means the removing of the leaven. Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. He went into the temple and he threw all the money lenders out, tipped over their chairs, tipped over the tables, told them to get the doves out of there. He took the evil. Sin is a picture in the Bible of, or leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. And so he cleansed his father's house from the leaven just before the Passover and just before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you'd indulge me a little bit, I'm going to ask you to imagine one more thing. Imagine with me that you are on trial. You are falsely or wrongly accused, let's just say, of thievery. Somebody said you stole something. You were arrested. You had a trial. Prosecution puts forward their arguments on why you're guilty. The defense presents arguments of why you are not. The jury is sent to deliberate. The jury returns. The judge says, as the jury reached a decision, the foreman rises and said, yes, Your Honor, we've come to the decision. Come to the verdict. This defendant is not guilty. Well, you're relieved because you're not guilty. So the judge says, you have been tried by a jury of your peers and you have been found not guilty. Therefore, I'm going to take you out and have you whipped within a, and beaten within an inch of your life. 
after we get done whipping you, um, the military needs a workout. And so they are going to punch you and hit you. And uh, then after that, we're going to execute you. So wait a minute. I'm, I'm innocent. What does the guilty guy get? That's what the innocent guys get. But that's exactly what happened with Jesus. He was completely innocent. And yet he endured all of these things. And we're going to look at this. The passion of Christ and the price that was paid because, as we saw in Psalm 49, the redemption of our souls is costly. Let's turn then to John chapter 19. Verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Some of the prophets in the Old Testament also saw these events and wrote of them. We go to Psalm 22. We'll have the verses up here on the screen. But from the very first verse in Psalm 22, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that it pertains to this crucifixion of Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, it says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Does that sound familiar at all? That's exactly what Matthew and Mark wrote. They saw this happen exactly like that. That's exactly what was being said. There's a a prophecy recorded by the psalmist. And then down in verses 14 through 18 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and cast, and for my clothing they cast lots. All of these things took place at the cross of Jesus. They took his clothes and divvied them out through cast lots for them. They pierced my hands and my feet. When David wrote this about a thousand years earlier, If you were going to be executed, it was usually by the sword 
or they would take you out and throw rocks at you until you died, stone you to death. Rome had not taken over the world and brought over this idea of crucifixion. And yet he specifically says, they pierced my hands and my feet. This particular text is attested both in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was translated between 300 and 100 B.C., well before Jesus came on the scene. It's also attested in the great Isaiah scroll found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that was hundreds of years old before Jesus was even born. As we think in terms of, what, what is this to us? Well, if, if you look at how old our Constitution is or our Declaration of Independence, that's how old that Isaiah scroll was when Jesus was born. It was well attested before he ever came that his hands and his feet were going to be pierced. A prophecy of what was happening. Isaiah had a front row seat to these events. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, I'm going to back up a little bit to Isaiah 52, verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, or his appearance, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. I am of the opinion, we just read it in in John 19, when Pilate brought Jesus out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and he said, Behold the man. Why did he say that? Behold the man. Isaiah tells us that he was marred more than any man. Now, people have been marred. There's been people who suffered burns, people who suffered dismemberment. There's been all kinds of marred people. Isaiah said he's marred more than any man. I think when Pilate brought him out and said, Behold the man, he was letting them know that that this mass of blood and torn flesh once looked like us. He used to look human, and now he's marred more than any man. Behold the man. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 53, verse 1, Well, no, let's go back and get verse 15 as well. So he shall he sprinkle many nations. That's exactly what happened. He's marred more than any man, and his blood is sprinkled. People out of many nations, people from all over the world have come to Jesus and God and saved. His blood cleanse has been cleansing people for 2,000 years. It can still cleanse today. He sprinkled many nations. Verse 50, uh, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded or pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, that means blows that cut into the skin. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, or literally has caused to land on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He died for the transgression of the people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, that word for offering for sin in Hebrew, that's the word asham, which is the same word that we see in Leviticus chapter 5, referring to the guilt offering. He was a guilt offering. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Okay, now we see a picture of the resurrection. We've seen that he died, and now we have this resurrection also. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The redemption of of their souls is costly. This one who was God, who emptied himself, that's what the word literally means in Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself. As God, he was never hungry. He was never thirsty. He was never cold. He was never hot. He was never confined to one place. He was omnipresent. But he became a man. He emptied himself confined himself to one physical body. He got cold. He got hot. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired because he became a man. He emptied himself. Took our form for 33 years. A life of passion. Not just a week of passion, but a life of passion. And then suffered for us. That's what it cost. The redemption of their souls is costly. And when we look at the price, this awful price, can we actually say that there is such a thing as a little sin? That's the price for sin. It is not a little thing. The first thing moving Jesus towards his crucifixion was a slap from the high priest's officer. 
He didn't like the way Jesus answered the high priest. And he slapped him. And Jesus said, well, did I say something wrong? I've taught in the synagogues. I've taught in the temple. Everybody's heard what I've said, had to say. Um, And he said, if I've said something wrong, then tell me what it is. Otherwise, why do you slap me? That was just the first of many. Matthew chapter 26 says they spat on his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped. Not only did they beat him with their fists, Matthew doesn't mention it, but Mark and Luke do. They blindfolded him. If somebody's going to hit you, you can roll with the punch if you see it coming and you don't bear the full, the full brunt of the force of that punch. They blindfolded him. He couldn't see it coming. He bore the full brunt of every single punch, every every single time, every single hit, every single blow, because they had him blindfolded. Then they took him to Pilate. Pilate declared him not guilty over and over again, at least seven times. I took the Gospels, lined them up, and there's sometimes that Pilate said, not guilty, and Matthew says it, Mark says it, Luke says it. Okay, that's just one time because they're all referring to the same time. So I went through and tried to divide it out. How many times was he declared not guilty? And I came up with at least seven distinct times that he was determined by Pilate to be not guilty. We don't have time to look at every one of them. I I need to move along. And we read one of the or two of the times when we were reading in John chapter 19, where he said, I find no fault in him. Then after all this abuse, they drove nails into his hands and feet, sticking him to a piece of wood. While he hung there, hanging from that cross, he spoke seven times. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Later on, he pointed out to his mother, the Apostle John. He said, woman, behold your son. Now, a lot of times that's portrayed as, woman, behold your son. It's like, look at the tragedy. What happened to me? This is, this is a tragedy. And that's not what he was saying. He was saying, John will take care of you. And then he told John, behold your mother. And so John was to take care of her as his own mother. He said, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is we read in Psalm 22. To the thief on the cross who repented, he rebuked the other one. He said, don't you, God? We deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kind of insight, what in the world did God show him that he's hanging there on the cross dying and he's looking at the man next to him that's a blob of blood and mess that's been beaten so badly with thorns in his head. And he looks at him and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes he's a king. He recognizes his kingdom is not of this world. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, Jesus spoke to him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus and the center cross 
was dying for sin. The other guy died in sin, the unrepentant thief. The repentant thief died to sin, to sin. After a while, Jesus said in John 19, 28, I am thirsty. And then shortly after that, he said, it is finished. Now that particular Greek word that's rendered there is using the Greek perfect tense, and it means a completed action with an ongoing state or an ongoing effect. He said, it is finished. It is finished forever. It is never to be finished again. It continues to be in the state of being finished. There is no more sacrifice. There's no reason to have mass. There's no reason to have anything else added to what Jesus did. He said, it is finished and it continues to be finished forever. It forever is going to continue in the state of being finished. He did it all. We don't have anything we can add to it. It is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. And the Roman centurion saw that, probably been involved in lots and lots of executions. And he said, I'm sure he, he said to himself, I have never seen a man die like this. I have never seen this before. This had to be God's son. The story isn't over. On the third day, on Sunday, first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. The redemption of their souls is costly. Now God is able to be both just and the justifier. Sin carries a penalty. The wages of sin are death. There's a, there's a debt there that has to be paid. He paid it. So God is just. He took out his full wrath against sin on his son. So he can be the justifier to the one who believes in Jesus. If you went out here and got a speeding ticket, I could pay that speeding ticket for you. Don't bring me your speeding tickets. Uh, this isn't an offer. Uh, this is a hypothetical, hypothetical scenario. I could pay your speeding ticket, and you're okay. You don't have to pay anything. It's all dealt with. There was a transgression, and there was justice, and you didn't have to pay. That is a teeny tiny little uh, picture of what Jesus did for us. The wrath of God was spent upon sin, upon Jesus. Our response, what do we do? How should we take this? How should we respond? Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, We should offer our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. This is your logical service. After what Jesus did for us, it's the only reasonable thing that we can do. That we should die to ourselves and live only for him. In fact, is the word that's used there in Romans 12.1 is the word from which we derive the English word logic. It is only logical that we offer ourselves wholly to him. 
We should be a living sacrifice to him that he would receive his full reward for his suffering. There's an old hymn that says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost. I pour contempt on all my pride. Our pride is contemptible. Mine is. I'm sure yours is too. I know mine is. The last verse ends with, after looking at what Jesus did on the cross, it says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We can't give Jesus our lives. If you have received Jesus and if you've been forgiven, he bought you. He paid for you. You belong to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Perhaps you are saved and you're struggling or, or playing with sin. Or perhaps you still want to live your life your way, doing the things that you desire. Know that when you receive forgiveness and are saved, you are also bought. You, are no, long, you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to him. Perhaps there's some here who have never received Jesus. He paid the price for your sin, just as I said about the speeding ticket. Um, the little picture of that, he paid for the sin. All you have to do is receive him and his gift. Whichever applies to you, if you want prayer, the elders will be available at the front here after the service, and I will be up front here too, and you're welcome to talk to us. And if you've never received Jesus, we would be honored to introduce him to you or introduce you to him. Father, we're thankful for your word and your revelation of what you did, of what the cost was, what the price was, and how you were willing to pay it. We're so thankful for the provision you've made for us in Jesus and his suffering and his sacrifice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your endurance in obeying the Father and carrying out the plan to pay this costly debt of salvation for souls. We give you thanks. And we worship you. We give you praise and glory. You, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, the Lamb who sits on the throne, the Lamb who was crucified, dead and buried, risen and ascended and coming. We long for your coming. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us. To not play some kind of plastic Christian game, some mediocre Christianity, some mealy mouth, semi-tubercular form of a walk in Christ, but rather that we would wholeheartedly give ourselves in devotion to you because you deserve it. Father, have your way in us as we know you better and love you more, that we'd walk in your ways and be conformed to the image of your Son. And so we ask this in his name. Amen.